Howdy, and welcome to Many Aggies, One World, a show about the stories and the lessons of those who have journeyed around the world to make an impact. My name is Sanjana Pola Pragada, with my co-host, Valeria Laya, and our mission is to show how even with students scattered all around the globe, we are still one Aggie family with interesting experiences to share. On the podcast today, we have Kendra Alvizuris, a Master of International Affairs student, and she is here to talk about her experience as a Pickering Fellow with the U.S. Department of State. Welcome to the podcast, Kendra. Thank you, Sanjana. It's really good to be here with you guys today. Indeed. Welcome to the podcast, Kendra. Um, to start off, could you please tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so I'm originally from Mitchell, South Dakota, um, a town of about 15,000 people. I did my undergraduate studies at South Dakota State University, and I graduated in May of 2019 with degrees in global studies. Spanish and political science. Um, <clears throat> after that, I took a couple years off from school to work. Um, initially, I was in the emergency department of the hospital in Berkeley, South Dakota. And then I moved to Sioux Falls, South Dakota to work in banking for about a year and a half. Um, but now I'm here at the Bush School. I'm in my second year of the Masters of International Affairs program. And I've really enjoyed my time here. Uh, my concentrations are American diplomacy, grand strategy. And then I did my own concentration in legal studies as well. Okay, that's very cool. And um, I wanted to ask, how did you decide to take this career path as there have been a lot of different like variations, like you've, you've had a lot of experience and what passions and interests have led you to like where you are now currently? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I will always say that my number one inspiration has been my family. Um, we have a pretty small family, but we're very, very close knit. Um, and so seeing my mom kind of seeing the strength that she had like as a single mother and all the sacrifices she made to raise me growing up. I mean, she would go without so that I could have books on, you know, ancient Egypt and Europe during World War II, things like that. So she has really fostered like a strong interest in history and other cultures in me. And then my grandfather was also a U.S. Marine. He was very proud of that time and very proud of like his service to his country. And so when I was a kid, I remember like he would tell me stories from his time overseas, especially in Japan, or I would look like through his photo albums, things like that. Um, so those have, you know, my family has definitely been my biggest inspiration. Uh, growing up, I was, I've always been interested in the history and culture. Like I said, I mean, my childhood bookshelves are, they're um, probably pretty different from the typical bookshelves, I would think. Um, like I said, I've got a lot of books on like history, travel, culture, things like that. Um, and I've had a lot of really strong professors as well and teachers when, you know, everything from elementary school through high school through college and now my master's degree, I've had really strong professors as well who've inspired me to continue studying, continue working hard and really fostered this interest in me. Um, I would say the turning point, though, was when I was a freshman in undergrad at South Dakota State, I had the opportunity to meet Madeline Albright who I had used um, during high school debate rounds. I had used a lot of evidence from her and a lot of her speeches as kind of like supporting points. Um, so she was kind of a personal hero of mine. Um, and so getting to meet her was definitely crucial in sparking my interest with the State Department specifically. From there, I did have a couple of professors in undergrad who were very influential in helping me gain the academic and the professional experiences that I would need to succeed in this as well. No, I love that. I love how you're commitment to public service so like you're saying it stemmed from like family and just like culture and like what you were reading then 
And like, what was that experience like? Like meeting like someone as big as Madeleine Albright, like meeting a U.S. Secretary of State at that time. And she came to quite a small town, right? Like you're telling me like you're bringing most people don't even know what diplomacy is or the concept. So like, how did that change your worldview? Like the moment that you got to meet her and things like that? Oh, it was incredible. I was only 18. Um, I just turned 18 and still kind of trying to figure out my path in life. But I had one specific professor from undergrad who was very much about um, making sure that women are just as active in politics and diplomacy as men and making sure that, you know, students who maybe haven't always had access to opportunities like that really got gained those valuable experiences. And so meeting Madeleine Albright was like a dream come true for me. And I know I'm, my nerdy side is coming out a little bit here, um, but I never in my wildest dreams imagined I would ever get to meet anyone of that stature, um, especially so young. And I was actually really nervous because we had read her book, The Mighty and the Almighty, in preparation for her event, her speech, and then getting to meet her. Um, but I didn't realize that she would be doing a signing of the book. So I had highlighted my book. I had like earmarked pages and written in it with pen. And then I like handed her my book and I'm like, I'm so sorry, like your book is completely destroyed. Like it's covered in highlights and, and sticky notes. And her assistant just kind of laughed. And she's like, no, if you could see, you know, Madeline Albright's books, they look just like this. So don't worry about it. So that made me feel a little bit better. But yeah, it was incredible. Um, she was just such a strong female figure that really has inspired generations of, of women to go into this field. And it was indescribable. And I'm incredibly grateful to my professors who helped make that opportunity possible for me. Well, that's that's amazing. Like you went from like going to her book signing to now currently being a Pickering Fellow. So congratulations on that. That's a huge deal. So could you please tell our viewers and like people who don't know a little bit more about what exactly are the Pickering and Randall Fellowships and what is that recruitment process like? Because up until I met you recently, I did not even know there was an entrance to state like that through a fellowship. Yeah, of course. And to be honest with you, I didn't know about this program when I was an undergrad either. I didn't find out about this program until I had already graduated. Um, but basically what it is, um, it's a recruitment program for DEI, diversity um, and inclusion program. And really the goal of both the Pickering and the Ringel Fellowships are to recruit people that are not quote unquote, like traditionally in the mainstream um, profession of diplomacy, right? So the Foreign Service kind of has this, a stereotype that it's mostly male, pale, and yell. And so the Pickering and Wrangell Fellowships are really geared towards attracting anybody outside of that like specific spectrum. So they're looking for everything from geographic diversity to gender diversity to socioeconomic diversity, racial diversity, religious diversity, anything and anything that you can think of. Those are the kinds of people that they're trying to recruit. So I think for me, the, the things that really stood out is that, you know, I am a woman, I, I don't come from a high class socioeconomic background, and I'm also from South Dakota. You know, typically when you think of diplomacy, you think of the East or West Coast, um, or maybe Texas, but you really, you know, you don't technically really think of South Dakota typically. Um, but what's really been helpful and incredible about these programs is it allows us to pursue a two-year master's degree um, there are, you know, there's a list of like partner schools that you can choose from, or if you find a different program that you think is better suited to you, it will help, you know, fund that as well. Um, so it allows us to take that and then compl upon completion of our master's degree and two internships with the State Department, then we're allowed to go into, I think it's called OR101 now, it used to be A100, but now it's OR101, like foreign, 
Foreign Service Orientation Training out in Washington, D.C. to actually enter the Foreign Service. Um, and then the time in the Foreign Service is a five-year contract. So from the time that you, you know, start your first post, you've got five years you know, locked in with the State Department. But at the end of that five years, if you still want to continue and you've passed you know, your FSOT and your FSOA, you're eligible to convert to you know, a full-time employee, provided that you've completed all of your professional goals as well. Yeah, no, very cool. And just like a little bit of background. So the way in, the ways into the State Department, right, is basically you take the Foreign Service Officer test, right? You you pass that and then you clear all the rounds, including interviews, or you go in through the fellowships like Pickering or Angel. And then like like you mentioned, Kendra, like you study for like those two years and then take the test, pass it and go in. And um, going on to the next question, just about like um, the importance of diplomacy on a whole. Um, so. Mm-hmm. What do you think is um, the importance of international diplomacy today? Like, I think diplomacy is huge. Per, and I know that I kind of have to say that, right? But I also say it because I believe it and I buy into it. I think that strong diplomatic relations play a crucial part in, you know, working towards this idea of world peace. They play a crucial part in communication, even during times of war or times of unrest. I mean, strong, effective diplomatic communications, they're really what alliances are built around, and especially with increasing globalization and increasing, you know, they say the world kind of gets a little bit smaller each year. Um, Diplomacy really is like that first, that key step in effective communication and proactive relationships, um, both bilaterally and multilaterally. Without effective diplomacy, I mean, it's just not, effective diplomacy really truly is like the crutch of you know, it's an incredible source of power for the United States, um, and it's an incredible way to to show our neighbors that we are invested in bettering not only our own country, but helping, you know, better our neighbors as well. Kendra, I know you uh, kind of touched on this a little bit already, but I mean, just going off of that diplomacy question, you kind of think about who's doing a uh, this diplomacy and you know you were a fellow for um pickering and um it's a it's something it's a fellowship program that wants to increase that diversity in government and historically the government has not been very diverse so how are the demographics changing within the state department and what is it like uh what is life like working there that's a really good question I, I would say that at least like junior foreign service officers or who are in their first like maybe five to 10 years of their career, um, those classes, as far as I know, have certainly been a lot more diverse than in, in past years. However, um, the State Department is still really struggling with that long-term retention of diverse candidates. Um, and while that could be attributed to any number of things, um, I know it is a goal that the State Department continues to work on and continues to improve. They're constantly reviewing, you know, things like support for extended family members and children, spouses, um, employment support, things like that. Um, and I'm sorry, what was the second part of your question? What life is like? Yes. So um, how these changing demographics uh, kind of have impacted what, what life is like working there. Mm-hmm. Sure. So I know anecdotally, I anecdotally, I have spoken to foreign service officers who, you know, they don't fit like the white Caucasian stereotype who in trying to do their jobs have been asked by, you know, foreign counterparts, you know, are you really American? Do you really represent the United States government? 
And so while I personally can't understand what that must feel like, I can only imagine how difficult it is to go to work every day. And, you know, you're questioned simply based on that you don't quote unquote look like the stereotypical American diplomat, right? Um, that being said, though, I like I said, I know the State Department is constantly working on initiatives to try to increase support. Um, they've increased support for like mental health initiatives in the last few years, which has been, I think, really helpful and really crucial. Um, and I really think it's, it's just very regionally dependent as well. Well, that's very cool. And um, I'm glad you mentioned the mental health aspect of it. And I, I also just like learned recently, like in the last um, last two, three years, the State Department has uh, increased its budget, like you said, for like diversifying their resources and stuff. And that's very interesting, like going into it, because I know you're someone who's already on the path, you're a fellow, you know, you're you're going to go into like state and you're going to be able to get that much more exposure and stuff. And like for people like me, right, who are like still trying to figure it out, like either take the FSOT or like try to become a fellow as well. Um, I wanted to ask like, what advice would you give to like newcomers like me who might be interested in following like a sim similar career path that is especially like um, demanding where the odds are against you and like that is a competitive, competitive field? Mm -hmm. I would say that it's really easy to let yourself be intimidated, especially if you're not, you know, from the DC area where you have exposure to careers like this all the time. Like I, like when I met Madeline Albright, like I knew what diplomacy was, I knew what the State Department was, kind of what they did, but I had no idea how to actually get there. And I was, you know, I was already 18. I was already an undergrad, knew what I wanted to study. Um, that being said, though, when I applied to the fellowship, I never in my wildest dreams imagined I would get even to an interview, let alone accepted. And so it's been a very humbling experience. And so my top piece of advice for anybody whether you're wanting to try for a fellowship or whether you're wanting to go the more quote unquote traditional route by taking the FSOT than the FSOA and advancing that way is to just try it, right? Because at any point, if you decide, you know what, this isn't for me anymore, then that's okay. No harm, no foul, right? Um, because I think a lot of people, especially who haven't had exposure to this career field, they see the thought of taking a written exam, taking a day-long oral assessment and then getting on a register to maybe hopefully get a spot in the foreign service, that is a very daunting process. I'm not going to lie, but it is achievable. And I hear a lot of people talk about how, well, I don't want to take the FSOT, the foreign service officer test, the written exam, because I don't feel prepared for it. Yeah. However, it's, it's a test that's very difficult to study for. And I wish people would keep in mind that the process from start to finish, it's just easily a two to three year process. So if you don't start today, if you don't start this year, you're putting it off for a year because you're either going to pass it or you're not and get an interview or you're not. And if you don't get an interview that first time, then you need to try again. And if you do get an interview that first time, then you're still looking at the process of getting in, but then you're, you've accelerated it that much further, right? And if you take the written test, and you decide you don't actually want to pursue this, you don't want the interview, you can decline it. it it's not a, a lifelong commitment right at that first step. And so what I, my number one piece of advice to people of, of all majors, I know like I, I have political science, international affairs, things like that, um, but there really is a place for everybody in the foreign service. I know they recruit a lot of teachers or um, I know they've recruited like authors and musicians, economists, business people, things like that, um, because there, there really truly is a place for everybody. And so regardless of your major, regardless of your you know, academic or professional experience, 
I would encourage people just to get started. And I guess also follow the State Department on Facebook, LinkedIn, things like that. And I know that's kind of like a, a personal plug. It sounds very self-serving. Um, I promise it's not totally because they do they post a lot of helpful links, um, study guides, tips and tricks, things like that as well. So really just kind of getting in touch and, and just taking that first step. It's a big step, but it's really important. I like what you said, especially about just like trying your luck with the exam because the process is so long. Because like I'm an undergrad and I'm a senior in um, international politics and diplomacy, as you already know. But um, a lot of my colleagues and my friends who I talk to, they're like, oh, yeah, I'm not ready for it yet. Or I don't want to take it. Or, you know, even I've been using some similar uh, reasons with myself for not like starting prep the way, you know, and like just hearing that, like, like you said, it is a two to three year process. And to Mm -hmm. actually like make headway on it like you do need Mm -hmm. to begin ASAP and Mm -hmm. like the experience of it comes from like the classes you're taking or just general knowledge and like keeping up to date with those things so I felt like that was a very important thing to just highlight more on and um, alongside that this summer we know that you are going to be interning uh, with the State Department at NATO in Brussels Mm -hmm. So that is a very, very cool overseas assignment. So we just want to ask, what are you looking forward to the most with that? And how has that been impacted by the current state of affairs in Eastern Europe? That's a good question. I could say any number of things. Um, I recently really got interested in the idea of multilateral diplomacy versus bilateral diplomacy. And the thing that I think is really unique about NATO specifically um, is not only like the the transcontinental connection, right? But also the fact that it requires a much high, like that alliance particularly requires a much higher degree of consistency across its members than I would say your average alliance does. Like to admit new members, all existing members of NATO need to be in complete agreement on that. And so I think the challenges of finding those agreements and the challenges of working with, you know, 30 plus countries at once are incredibly interesting and incredibly rewarding. Um, Not to mention, you know, the conflicts going on between Ukraine and Russia right now. Um, And, you know, you know, will NATO, will they or won't they, right? Will they get involved or won't they get involved? And, you know, thus far, they haven't gotten involved directly. Um, As far as I know, the conflict hasn't changed, you know, my plans to to join NATO this summer. And I don't anticipate anticipate that changing. But, um, you know, you never can say for sure. Um, but I know that, you know, NATO is dedicating a lot of resources to research and monitoring of the situation um, as well. So that should add for another kind of layer of interesting challenges this summer. No, oh, yeah, like just just looking at the demographic in that part of the world as well. I heard that like uh, the International Criminal Court recently, mm-hmm. um, they issued an arrest for Putin, President, mm-hmm. President Vladimir Putin, because um, he of his de- deportation of I believe, Ukrainian children. So that's very interesting how politics is going in that way. And it's good Mm -hmm. to know that like either way you're going to be going into that situation and seeing what you you can contribute there and the impact that you can make. Mm -hmm. And um, in in accordance with that, what are your future plans and aspirations? Um, I feel like I already know this, but please let uh, (laughs) everyone else know. Yeah, I think we've talked about this a few times. Um, Honestly, my number one goal is to just have an adventure while also serving my country. Um, And I know that sounds very cheesy and uh, again, maybe a little bit self-serving and I don't mean it to, but what I mean is that 
you know, I've, I've always been interested in travel and culture and, you know, I learning new languages and things like that. But the foreign service is also, I mean, it's number one goal, right, is, is to serve the United States and to help our neighbors abroad. Those are like the two kind of pinnacles there. And so those are two things that really resonate with me as well, especially like the public service aspect of it. Um, that being said, in theory, would I love to be an ambassador someday? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's yeah. every, almost every young foreign service officer's goal is to ultimately yeah. have my own ambassadorship. Um, I really have a kind of a special affinity for Latin America. I speak Spanish and I've taken, you know, Spanish was one of my majors in undergrad. And so I've done a lot of like research, professional and volunteer work with Hispanic immigrants. Um, and I've traveled to Latin America several times. So in theory, I would love to spend a good chunk of my career serving there. And if I were to become an ambassador, I would love for it to be to a Latin American country. However, that being said, um, at this stage in my career, I'm just, I'm hoping for an adventure and I know that it will be. Um, and I, you know, I'm, I'm worldwide available. So if, you know, if I find a new interest or find a different region that I want to focus on, I'm open to that as well. Well, that's very cool. And um, yeah, like that's your um, language and you can like specialize into other areas if that's like, mm -hmm. that if that's what's needed at that moment. and. Um, yeah, so are there any other last words or like if you had to simplify your advice to someone who wants to get out there or like someone who needs to know specific things about themselves before they take a step like this, like joining the public service or putting their life, right? Putting their giving their life for their country. What is it? What is what is it that you would say to them? I would honestly tell them to just get started. Like I said, I know it's an intimidating process. I've been kind of staring down the barrel of that gun for a while. Um, but I think that the majority of people tend to underestimate how prepared they really are. And they tend to underestimate their own abilities, especially people from diverse backgrounds who have not historically been recruited into you know, government functions, government bureaus. I would say, I mean, the worst that's gonna happen is you don't pass the test that first time. But at that point, I mean, what are you gaining by taking it and kind of sticking your neck out? You are gaining the experience of having been there, done that, and knowing what you need to work on for next time. The other thing I would say is just reach out to people who have goals similar to yours or who are going through the same thing you are and try to build that network and that community. I mean, that's kind of what I think, what I personally feel like I was really lacking in undergrad. And that community is what the fellowship has really given me. And so finding people that you can kind of bounce ideas off of, review your resume with, review your cover letter with, things like that. That's invaluable and super important. Um, finally, if you're looking at the Foreign Service specifically, I would recommend checking out the 13 dimensions that are listed on the State Department's website. Those 13 dimensions really truly are like what they're looking for in candidates. And I think that most people have a lot more of those dimensions than they think they do. And so by just reviewing your resume and kind of pinpointing experiences, you know, academic, volunteer, and professional, personal experiences that they have, really tailoring those experiences to those 13 dimensions will help people be a lot more successful in this career as well. That's amazing. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. Your input and advice has been invaluable. As we uh, kind of uh, reach the end of the podcast and as we wrap up, I kind of wanted to bring it um, a little more locally and ask you about your experience at AM and how you think um, 
what you've learned here will help you beyond and just kind of like why A&M just a little bit about your Aggie story essentially yeah so I'm going to be honest with you A&M was actually the last program that I applied to I applied to six different grad schools and um, I hadn't really considered it until I saw it on the partner list for my fellowship but I am so, so glad that I did. Um, Ambassador Larry Knapper was one of my interviewers when I had to do my interview um, to get into the program. And he was also able to connect me to a number of current and former students here at the Bush School. And the one thing that, you know, both Ambassador Knapper and those students all said to me that they felt Bush School students had in common, regardless of their political affiliations or, you know, personal opinions, was that they're all dedicated to this idea of public service. You know, we have it plastered on our wall that public service is a noble calling. And it is, I truly feel that it is. And in my two years here, almost two years, um, I think that's been very true. I think there are very few exceptions to that rule and that has really both impressed and humbled me. Um, what I like about the Bush School specifically is that I think all the professors are dedicated to their, their students you know, professional, academic, and personal success. I think that there's a nice mix of both practitioners and, you know, PhDs who do active research. I have learned just as much from both groups of professors, and I'm equally grateful to both of them. Um, I've learned, you know, about like theoretical and research methods, but I've also learned about, you know, how to effectively negotiate, which is a hugely key, key skill in diplomacy specifically. Um, so yeah, I've really, I've truly enjoyed, um, being here at the Bush school and it's been, it's been a wonderful experience and I absolutely made a wonderful decision when I chose to come here. Um, I, I feel very well prepared for the next steps in my career and I'm very grateful to all the faculty and, and professors here who have, who have helped me as well. Well, that's, that's amazing to hear. Um, I'm really glad that you are really enjoying your higher education at Texas A&M. And I'm really glad that I was able to bump into you as well <laughs> and learn a lot about the network and the cover letters and this and that. And I feel like the lasting words are just to just go for it, really. Like, just just apply yourself, um, see how far you can get with that. And um, I would say, like you said, like negotiation and trusting your gut instincts when it mm -hmm. comes to this sort of calling, that is very noble. And I'm going to give it to Valeria to wrap this up absolutely so uh yeah just to wrap up we want to give you our final thank yous for coming on to the podcast we've really enjoyed hearing about your experiences and thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in and we will see you in the next episode